0: 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verse uh, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is an a interesting passage. We're just going to focus in on this verse today, this, this verse 7. You husbands, in the same way. What is this, in the same way? What is the same thing that he said to wives in chapter 3, verse 1? In the same way, you wives, and he, he had said to them, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that you, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And so what we talked about last time is that he was sharing with wives. He said, here's how you can keep peace in your home. Here's how you can do it. You want to do it? Fine. If you want to to do it a different way, I'll just back off and you can try to run your home your own way. He gives us a prescription for keeping our home in peace. That's what he does. And and, uh, he said to the wives in the same way, because up in verse 13... He had said, "Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every." That's in, in chapter two, verse thirteen. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and so he was telling everybody, "You have to walk in submission." And then again, in verse eighteen of chapter two of First Peter, he said, "Servants, be submissive to your masters," and so servants are going to have to submit. Everybody's going to have to submit to institutions. And in, in chapter three, verse one, in the same way, you wives be submissive. Now in verse eight of chapter three of first Peter, he, he, I'm sorry, in, in verse seven, he says, you husbands in the same way, in the same way that I've been giving the command of the Lord. These are commands. Every one of these is an imperative. It's not an indicative. It's an imperative. God is speaking to us and he is saying, Uh, you husbands in the same way. This is a command. So here's now the command for husbands. He says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. In the same way, just as I've been commanding others, I'm commanding specifically now, you husbands. What do you husbands have to do? You are to live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. First of all, live. In other words, you don't divorce her. You are to live with your wives. This is exactly what Jesus was teaching us, what Jesus was was, uh, teaching us in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, it says in verse three, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? "...and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever therefore God has joined, let no man separate." So Jesus is clearly saying, the man is not to separate this thing. The man is not to take this thing apart. This is strongly, strongly, these are very strong words, this is not to be taken apart." Now, this is not talking about women divorcing their husbands because there was no divorce for a woman. So in Israel, a woman couldn't divorce her husband uh, uh, all all the way up until recent times. Uh, And I don't don't even know if it's law yet in Israel, but even in the recent past, a woman could not divorce her husband. Uh, Here, uh, it says that the man is not to divorce his wife. He's not to put her away. He's not to allow this to separate. And so then they come back at him, they said in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 19, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has never been this way. Jesus said, Moses allowed it because your hearts were just so hard. But it has never been this way from the beginning. And then he goes on to say, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This is pretty firm. He says the only, the only reason that, that you would be allowed to is if, if she has committed immorality. That's it. That's it. And so he's very firm on this. And, and this is what we see here. He's, he's quite firm on this. And so when he, when he says to us, when he says in, in verse seven, you husbands, and this is in first Peter chapter three, verse seven, you husbands in the same way, the same way I've been instructing others, I'm, I'm instructing you now in the same way, live with your wives. You can't give them up anymore. We're not going to allow this stuff. Live with your wives in an understanding way. It is up to you to live with them in, a, in an understanding way. This is on you. This is on you, man. It is up to you to live with them in an understanding way. Even if they are not walking, you are to live with them in an understanding way. If they don't come for family devotions, you are you run the family devotions. You teach the children in family devotions. You teach the word of God. And And my experience is you get the children up, you start teaching them in morning devotions, spend some time together <clears throat> regularly in this practice with your family, your wife will come. Your wife will come, and because she she may go a little time without coming, but she'll come back. She'll come. You are to live with your wife in an understanding way. You are to understand her. You know, we've been we've been to marriage counseling five or seven times in, in throughout our marriage, and and uh, uh, in every case, it was me who initiated it. I wanted a tune up. I felt that we needed some help, and so so I initiated this, and I called the the uh, uh, the counselors. I made the appointments. Now, we never saw counselors for very long. I don't think we've ever seen them for more than six or eight weeks because I would say to them, whatever you tell me, I will do. And they'd say, you know, if that's true, if whatever we tell you, you'll do, this won't take long. And whatever they told me, I did. One time, I remember one suggested that I do something and I just explained to her what the outcome of that would be and, and then she said, oh, yeah, maybe maybe better you don't do that. But, but um, uh, it says you are to live with your wives in an understanding way. The obligation is upon you, man, to understand her. She is to submit to you and to submit, but you are to understand her even if she's not submissive. It never says, if she does what I told her to do above, then understand her. No, it never says that. You are to live with her. You cannot divorce her. This is for the rest of your life. Jesus had made clear the only grounds for divorce that he would allow it. Not that you had to do it. Not that you couldn't have worked it out. But the only time I would allow it is if she has been maritally unfaithful. In other words, if she has participated in adultery. That's the only time that you can divorce her. Only time. But it would be best if you worked it out. And... and uh and, and here it says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. You can't give them up. Live with your wives in an understanding way. It is up to you to understand them. It is up to you. This is on you, man. And, and uh, uh, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. This does not say that she is weaker, but as with someone weaker. I've met lots of wives that are stronger than their husbands. Some of them even stronger physically than their husbands. Certainly as they get older, a lot of times husbands decay much faster and, and women's are, are, are can be uh, you know fairly spry and still working out. And these guys have just let themselves just get destroyed. And, uh, but he says, as with someone weaker, you are to treat her as if she is weaker. That's the way you are to care for her, as if she is a weaker vessel. Not that she is, but you are to so understand her. You are to treat her in a manner that she's a precious one. That she's one precious. And a lot of times women women may be physically stronger. Certainly many women are emotionally stronger where guys are suffering from depression and guys are going through so many different things, PTSD or whatever. And many times it's the woman who's strong. It's the woman who, who, who's able to bear up under under the, the blows that life throws at us. And, and uh, he says, but as if she were weaker as with someone weaker, as you would if someone were weaker. You have to treat her in that way. And you may say, why? You know, she's a woman. Now, let me just tell you, in the 21st century, we read these verses very differently than they were being read, than other people were reading them in the first century when these commands came. In the first century, women had almost no rights, almost none. Certainly in Israel, almost none. And even in the Greco-Roman world, and so this is just radical, just absolutely radical in protecting women. We look at this as if as 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 if th- this this is somehow favoring men. No way. Look at this, and it says, and and it it says, uh, as with someone weaker. And you would say, well, why? You know, she, she's just a woman, just a woman. That would be their response. I know that's not the response today, but that would be their response. And he says. Since she is a woman, just by the fact that she is a woman, you treat her in this way. You treat her with dignity. Because Adam was not the ultimate in God's creation. He was the penultimate. The ultimate was Eve. Eve was the last of God's creation. Eve was the last. He made woman last. She was the ultimate. And he said, you are to treat her in this way simply because she is a woman, you give her the respect. Simply because she is a woman, you treat her well. Why? Because she is a woman. That's enough. Since she is a woman, that should be enough. That should be enough. Because God says, because she's a woman, you treat her in an understanding way. You treat her as if she were a weaker vessel. since she is a woman and show her honor. Show her honor. You are now obliged, husband, to show your wife honor. You are obliged to show her honor. We must honor them. You are obliged now to show her honor and showing her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is so radical. She is a fellow heir of the grace of life. You are in this together. Man is not higher than woman. She is a fellow heir. She is going to inherit. Heir means she's going to inherit. She is a fellow heir. Along with you, she's going to enter into eternal life. She is a fellow heir with you. So that your prayers will not be hindered. If you don't treat your wife right, your prayers will be hindered. Whether that's because there's so much emotional stuff happening in your life, you're not going to be able to pray, or if God just... Puts off your prayer. We don't know. But somehow your prayers will be hindered. Either God is going to shun your prayers away. I mean, this is amazing that God would do this. I mean, this is really strong words. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Prayers can be hindered. Prayers can be hindered. For the husband, if he does not honor his wife, if he does not honor his wife, You may say, well, she's not worthy of honor. It doesn't say whether she's worthy of honor. It says you are to honor her, period. Why? Because she is a woman. Simply because she is a woman. That's it. And it will make more sense. In John 7, verse 17, it says, If anyone is willing to do my will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. When we do the will of God, then we understand it. It's when we do the will of God that we understand what God is teaching us. It's when we do the will of God that we understand it. I want you to turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, which is a classic portion on wives and husbands. We're just going to read a couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So he says, this is Ephesians five twenty one. We are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be subject to their husbands. Okay, so wives, why, why should I be subject? What is this? Let me ask you this. Which is harder to do, to be subject to somebody or to give your life for somebody? I ask you, I'm to be subject to the chair of my department. The chairperson of my department is younger than me. I was there when he was hired. I was there when I I voted for him to get tenure, but now he's chair of my department. He is chair. I have to submit to his leadership as chair of the department. Now, I'm willing to submit to his, his leadership as chair of the department, but I'm not so sure that I'm willing to die for him willing to give my life for him. I'm not so sure about that. Here's what it says in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. You husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as Christ gave himself for the church, you are to give yourself up. For your wife, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. So you are to give your life for your wife. It's harder. It's harder to give your life than it is to submit. Submission is much easier than giving your life. Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus gave his life. In Isaiah chapter 52, it talks about the scourging of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. It says his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. This is this is uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. In Jesus's scourging, he was marred more than any man ever, more than any man ever. He was marred. His his scourging was so severe. He was so disfigured in this. He was marred more than any man. And when he came out after that scourging, after bearing, just the beginnings of of, of the bearing, he wasn't even yet on the cross. It says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. This is in John chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put purple robe on him. And they began to come to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out and said to them, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no no guilt in him. This is this is a man in whom Pilate, his vacillating judge, found no guilt. Pilate had him scourged to this extent. When Jesus comes out after the scourging, verse five, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man. Behold the man. This is the perfect picture of a man. A total self-donation, one for the other. I suffer on your behalf. Total self-donation, one for the other. This is exactly what Jesus did. A total self-donation, one for the other. This is what he requires of men. What he requires of men is more than what he requires of women. Much more. He calls us to be like Jesus. You think that that would be easy? You think it'd be easy to give yourself to that extent for another person? If this word, if this thought, if this action is not in your best interest, it is not the love of God. Everything, everything he calls on men to do for their wives, an enormous amount. And Jesus gave himself for us and he never vacillated in his commitment to give himself for us. When he was in the garden and he said, Father, take this cup from me, that had nothing to do with him trying to get out of dying on the cross With him to get out get out of going through the scourging or dying on the cross on my behalf. Never, never. That's not what he was praying when he said, Father, take this cup from me. He never would have meant that because it was prophesied that that would happen, that he would die for our sins. Jesus would never go against a prophecy. He came. He wanted to do this on our behalf. Willingly. What he was praying about was he did not want to be separated spiritually from his father. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament where Jesus had to be separated spiritually from his father. And when he was on the cross, Jesus' only cry of despair was, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He is saying, you have separated yourself from me spiritually. That was the agony for Jesus. That was the thing that he was praying, let this cup pass from me that he would not have to go the spiritual separation from his father. But even that he did on our behalf. He never, never meant to, to undergo any, any restriction from suffering physically on our behalf. Never, never in a million years, ever. That was purely separation from his father. Because imagine a man who gives himself totally to his wife and dies for her and now he's separated from God forever. I mean, that'd be too much to bear. The separation from God will never come to me. It came to my Jesus on my behalf. This is amazing what Jesus has done for us. This is what he calls men to do. This is what he calls for us. Now what I want to do is I want to read for you some portions. And this is going to be longer reading than I would normally do. But I think it's important because because it's really touched on. This is written by a woman. This is written by Rebecca McLaughlin in Confronting Christianity. This is, so, so this is on a chapter, does, does, does the Bible denigrate women? And so here's something she writes. She writes, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin writes this, The portrayal of women in the Gospels, particularly in Luke's Gospel, is stunningly countercultural. Luke constantly pairs men with women, and when he compares the two, it is almost always in the woman's favor. Before Jesus' birth, two people are visited by the angel Gabriel and told they are going to become parents. One is Zechariah, who becomes John the Baptist's father. The other is Jesus' mother, Mary. Both ask Gabriel how this can be. But while Zechariah is punished with months of dumbness for his unbelief, Mary is only commended. The prominent role of women in Luke continues as Mary and her cousin Elizabeth prophesy over Jesus in the womb and as a prophet Simon and a prophetess Anna prophesy over the infant Jesus. If you look in the gospels at the way Jesus spoke to some men, he never spoke to women like that ever. Why? Because they are women. Just because they are women. Jesus was always in the favor of women. Two people, Two people uh, uh, doubted. Two people asked Gabriel, how can this be? Zechariah is, is, is given dumbness for, for many months. Uh, uh, Mary is commended. Uh, these, both Mary and, and uh, Elizabeth are prophetesses over this child in the womb, Jesus. And then uh, Simeon prophesies over, over the baby Jesus. So does Anna. And then it goes on. The adult Jesus consistently weaves women into his preaching. In his first sermon, he enrages his audience with two Old Testament examples of God's love reaching beyond the Jews. One is a woman and the other is a man, Luke 4.25. In Luke 15, the female-oriented parable of the lost coin is nestled between male-oriented parables of the lost sheep and the lost or prodigal son. In Luke 18, the female-oriented prayer parable of the persistent widow is paired with the male-oriented prayer parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Even as he approaches the crucifixion, Jesus stops to address female mourners in Luke chapter 23. In a male-dominated culture, his attention to women throughout his preaching is remarkable. The male and female thread works its way through Luke's healing accounts. First, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, Luke chapter 4. Then he heals Simon's mother-in-law, Luke chapter 4. In chapter 7, Jesus heals a centurion's servant, and then he raises a widow's son out of compassion for the grieving mother. In chapter 8, Jesus heals a man with a demon, then a bleeding woman, and then a synagogue ruler's daughter. Jesus' last healing in Luke is of a woman with a disabling spirit. She praises God when the male synagogue ruler objects. Jesus calls him a hypocrite and reminds him of the woman's status as, as a daughter of Abraham in Luke 13. Jesus's elevation of women as moral examples is yet more striking. In Luke 7, he is dining at Simon the Pharisee's house when a sinful woman, likely a prostitute, disrupts the party. She weeps on Jesus's feet, wipes them with her hair, and anoints him with ointment. Simon is appalled. Surely, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know this woman is utterly unworthy of touching him. But Jesus turns the contrast on its head and holds the woman up as an example to shame Simon. In cultural terms, Simon has every advantage. He is a man. She is a woman. He is religiously admired. She is despised. He's hosting a dinner party. She is a weeping prostrate embarrassment. But according to Jesus, she surpasses Simon on every count, Luke chapter 7. Jesus elevates another low-status woman, as a moral example in Luke 21, when he commends the poor widow for her gift of two small copper coins. In Jesus' eyes, this offering exceeds the much larger gifts the rich are putting in the offering box, Luke chapter 21. Jesus's valuing of women might seem to be compromised by his choice of 12 male apostles marrying the 12 tribes of Israel. But Luke emphasized the the, uh, the women that women followed him too. Uh, It says, quote, the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Uh, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him out of their personal means, unquote, Luke chapter eight. Like Jesus's male disciples, these women were in for the long haul, Luke chapter 23. They were there at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and they were there at the end. But can these women legitimately be called disciples Jesus answers that question for us in Luke 10 when we first meet two of, of Jesus' female friends, Mary and Martha. Martha is playing the traditional role serving her guests while Mary is, is assuming a traditionally male role sitting at Jesus' feet with the other disciples. Martha asks Jesus to correct this to tell Mary to get up and help with the serving. But Jesus affirms Mary saying, quote, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Unquote, "Luke chapter 10. Luke's final comparison surrounds Jesus's resurrection. In Luke 24, some of his female disciples visit the tomb to anoint his body. There they encounter angels who announce the resurrection. The women report this to the apostles, who don't believe them. Peter runs to the tomb to check the facts, but even then they are not convinced. When two male disciples meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they recount the woman's tale. The women's tale" but do not seem to have absorbed it. Jesus rebukes them, saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Luke chapter 24. Luke is not the only gospel to elevate women. In a moving account in John, Jesus shocks his disciples by crossing ethnic, religious, gender, and moral boundaries to talk with a sexually compromised Samaritan woman who becomes an evangelist to her people, John chapter 4. Later, Jesus saves a woman caught in adultery from being stoned, forcing her male accusers to acknowledge that they are not morally superior to her, John chapter 8. Then in John 11, when we see Jesus's tender interaction with uh, with Martha and Mary after the death of their brother, Lazarus, Jesus speaks some of his most famous recorded words to comfort Mary and then cries with her sister before miraculously healing Lazarus from the dead. In Matthew 9, Jesus commends the faith of a woman, suffering from unrelenting menstrual bleeding, who touched him to be healed. In Matthew 19, he protects women from unwarranted divorce, which would, in many cases, leave them destitute. Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture in which women were devalued and often exploited, it underscores the equal status before God and his desire for personal relationship with them. Uh, but is Jesus's life and ministry an oasis of equality in the desert of Bible misogyny? And then he goes, she goes on and she describes many other things. Let me skip a little bit and bring you to another passage. Um, there's no mandate for traditional roles, traditional gender roles in the Bible. Ephesians 5 sticks like a burr in our 21st century ears because centuries of traditional gender roles have often meant wives contorting around the needs of their husbands while husbands assert their dominance. We think of the stereotypes gently mocked By the relationship between mr and mrs banks and mary poppins but paul does not say that the husband's needs come first or that women are less gifted in leadership than men or that women should not work outside the home at least one of paul's key ministry partners was a woman who did just that and that was lydia Uh, as did the idealized wife described in the old testament book of proverbs paul does not specify uh, that wives should earn less than their husbands or that families should privilege the husband's career over the wife's. A man may work for a nonprofit, a pastor of church, or study for a PhD and earn a fraction of his wife's corporate salary. Paul is clear elsewhere that men cannot abdicate their responsibility to ensure that their families are, uh, are provided for, but this does not mean that the husband must be the primary breadwinner. In biblical terms, the value of work is measured not in dollars, but in service. Indeed, Jesus himself, the archetypical leader, did not earn money. And he was financially dependent on some of his female followers. And that's in Luke chapter eight, verse two and three. Viewed closely, Ephesians five is a withering critique of common conceptions of traditional gender roles that have often amounted to privileging men and patronizing women. In the drama of marriage, the wife's needs come first and the husband's Drive to prioritize himself is cut down with the brutal acts of the gospel. There, this is no return to Victorian values. Rather, it is a call to pay attention to the character of Christ. If we hear the call to husbands as a mandate to oppress and dominate, we are forgetting that Jesus came not to be served but to serve, not to lead an army but to give his life as a ransom. When husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the word translated gave up is the same one the Gospels use when Jesus is handed over to be crucified. And let me, let me read uh, women in the church. So here's a section on women in the church. Springing from this well, this strange new first century faith flowing out of Judaism proved highly attractive to women. Sociologist Rodney Stark has shown from a wide array of textual and and archaeological sources that the early church was majority female. This is particularly striking given that the Greco-Roman world in the first and second centuries was disproportionately male due to selective infanticide of baby girls and the high proportion of maternal deaths in childbirth. Indeed, early Christianity was mocked by outsiders for its appeal to women. The second century Greek philosopher Celsus snarked that Christians, quote, want and are able to conceive, I'm sorry, quote, want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable and stupid, only slaves, women and little children. while the third-century Christian apologist uh, Minucus Felcus records critics saying that Christianity attracted the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their sex. The status of women was raised in the church, Paul's inclusion of nine women among the ministry partners he lists at the end of his letter to the Romans is one evidence among many that women played a major role in first century spread of the Christian message. Roman families often gave their prepubescent daughters away in marriage, but Christian women could marry later. They also benefited from Christian uh, condemnation of traditional male prerogatives in regard to divorce, incest infidelity, polygamy, and female infanticide. If Paul's instruction on marriage are shocking to our modern ears, they would have shocked his first century hearers for precisely the opposite reason, their radical elevation of women. Indeed, for many Gentiles, the Christian expectation that men be faithful to their wives and sacrificial in their approach to them would have seemed quite unreasonable. Just as we cannot cling to a white-centric perception of Christianity in the face of the global church, so we cannot maintain a male-oriented view. To this day, more women than men are Christians. Globally, women are generally more religious across a range of indices, but the differences, difference is more pronounced for Christians, both in affiliation and in practice. For example, Christian women are 7% more likely than Christian men to attend church on a weekly basis. As Yale professor Stephen Carter points out, quote: Around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians are women of color. Wow! So that is that is just just a picture. And when 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 uh, when Peter tells men, you husbands, in the same way, you are to live with your wives in an understanding way. It is the man's obligation to initiate the understanding. If there is a rift, it is the man's obligation to resolve that rift. It is the man's obligation, just like it is the parent's obligation to resolve any rift with their children. And, and Shireen would remind me of that at times. She would say, you need to go and talk to your child. You, this is your child. You need to talk to them. Even if I fe- felt it was grossly unfair what they had said to me or what they had done to me. As the father, I was obliged to initiate that. As the husband, I am obliged to resolve when there is marital discord. It is, I am under obligation because I'm the one tasked with this thing of of living with her in an understanding way, as with someone that is weaker. I am to treat her as if she were weaker. She may not be weaker, but I'm to treat her in that manner. Why? Because she is a woman, simply because she is a woman. And I'm to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that my prayers won't be hindered. That is what men are tasked with according to the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. It is good and right and holy. I thank you, Lord God, for the teachings in your word. You instruct us and you constantly call us to something greater. And Lord, I commit this to you and I pray, Lord, Do this in the lives of these men here. Do this in their lives. Take these young men and use them as good husbands and provide for them good homes and good marriages. Father, I pray that they would do as they have been so instructed and then watch what you will do in the life of their home and in the life of their marriage. Lord Jesus, we shall forever be grateful to you because you bore our sins upon the cross. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord that you bore all this for us. You initiated this and you saw it through and you died for us. That while we were yet sinners, you died for the ungodly. You died for us. Blessed be your name. Amen. And let me just say, if there's anybody online or anybody in the class, if you do not know the Lord, I urge you to reach out to me. Send me an email to tour at drjamestour.org tour at drjamestour.org and let me know if you are not a believer in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. This invitation is only to those who do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me get together with you by Zoom. We'll spend an hour together and let me tell you why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus.